Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, episode 271, Thursday, December the 8th, 2022. We're getting towards mid-December, the crazy, silly season, holiday period, Christmas, New Year. How are you, Mark? Wonderful, Brendan. A bit warm. I'm a bit, uh, a bit yes. warm as we were talking about off air. Now, you need to fill our <laughs> subscribers and listeners in, Mark. Where exactly in the world are you? You're a little bit out there for a well, while, aren't you? As we usual. are a little bit out there. We are a bit out there. Um, we're uh, at Bamaga in uh, the very far north of Queensland, about as far north in Queensland as you can go. So the I, very tip of Australia, isn't it, Mark? The, the northern tip, northeasterly tip, or not most northern tip itself, isn't it? Yeah, but it's on yeah. sort of the east coast, isn't it? Yep. Um, and it's um, it's uh, warm and muggy, and uh, this time of year, the the uh, the dry season is just building up into its very humid pre-wet season burst, and so we're enjoying the the very last dregs of the dry uh, before the before about to get dumped on by the monsoons, Brendan. Ah, you're. A- Better man than me, Mark. I, think, <laughs> I think I'd certainly go tropo being up, up in that area for a period of time, but um, maybe you're already tropo, so it's not going to affect you that much. Started off that way, so no problem. And good to see you got up there. I was I was tracking you, and you were sending me regular updates on your several well thousand kilometer or whatever trip it was, and uh, good to see you made it um, in one piece and. You've managed to rig up a, a little bit of a, a bit of wire um, to try and get a bit of internet access there, Mark. Which that's is right. Great. I'm standing on one foot, hand <laughs> held high in the air with the just coat don't hanger. get hit with that lightning, Mark, with the monsoon, <laughs> and uh, we may not hear from you again. So great to hear that you're there, Mark, and that you're safe and sound. And I look forward to hearing some updates as as you are going to be there for a, a period of time, doing a bit of a. Well, almost like a house sitting, isn't it? That's it. That you a bit of caretaker work. Caretaker, Mark, the caretaker. Excellent. <laughs> so I think we should jump into our news stories, Mark. We've got two really quick ones, and I think you wanted to take the first one. So our first news story is um, it, it comes from the London Vet Show, Brendan, and um, it's a, a, a discussion that was held that uh, looks to investigate how veterinarians may reach a younger audience, particularly the the Gen Xs, that um, that maybe our traditional patterns of communication as professionals might not be reaching the younger pet owner, and and maybe our ability to prevent disease, uh, provide that preventative health care, um, might be compromised. So the BVA. Uh, Congress, uh, they they had uh, held the London Vet Show and um, they had a bit of a discussion about the ways, uh, I think it was a round, uh, yeah, one of those um, panel debates about the best way to uh, reach the Gen Z client um, engaging with a new generation of pet owners 
Um, and um, and yeah, they I, I am unsure of the the uh, outcome of the specifics of the discussion, but an excellent topic to be had, and probably one of the key things I think that um, that I see. Um, both here in Australia and uh, in the UK and in America at the moment is the the rapid development of telemedicine um, and the way that the younger generation brought up on their communication devices are more likely to slip into um, those aspects of telemedicine and um, and yeah I'd be very interested to to see how those things progress over the next few years Brendan uh, particularly regulation um, and uh, the way that um, that we as a profession ourselves uh, manage that uh, new form of communication yes these youngsters mark why do we t- they're t- troublesome aren't they um, I had a telemedicine consult myself um, last week with my GP about uh, a little minor issue we needed to sort out and uh, it all went quite well. So I can see the value in doing those little telemedicine type consults there, Mark. And uh, I, When I saw the article, Brennan, I thought that it was, uh, was going to tell us some stuff about uh, TikTok and how we could, um, you know, a dancing... Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, I think uh, that would be pretty cringeworthy if it was your eye doing it, Mark. Yes. So, yes, good article, Mark. Um, Gen Z trying to deal with the deal with the um, Gen Zers and the way they engage or not um, at the London Vet Show. My article is completely different, Mark. Um, it's well, it sort of segues into our main story this week, our main topic this week, and the title of this is long. Long-considered loners, many marsupials may have complex social lives and the initial thought was that many marsupials have not much of a social life and that they're often just on, on their own or with a with a little partner. And um, it goes into quite quite detail here. It's, a, it's an article that was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society, B, not A, Mark, B, suggesting that how the scientists could think about lifestyles of the early mammals and the findings um, basically said that uh, they do have social lives, Mark, um, and they, they're often found in even complex social groups. And as I say, we'll segue into our, our main topic this week um, and that they're not just as solitary as people thought anecdotally. They used to think that they weren't very social at all. And, um, yeah, we'll link to that article if, if people want some more detail there. There's a, there's a couple of different... They, they studied... They found out that... Um, determined that 19 species or 31% of those studied do appear, having said what I just said, Mark, to go strictly solo, but nearly half of the species always live in pairs or groups. And they found lots of variations between the species as well. So there we go. Um, and look, so- I reckon my tip, Brendan, is that if we looked at those 19 species, I haven't got the list of them here. We might have to look them up. But my, I'm betting, I'm putting it out there, that... They probably still have a social life. It might not be that they live in direct companionship with family members or partners, but I'll bet that uh, there's extensive olfactory communication over distance or vocalisation. They'll still have a a social life, maybe not in the strict 
in a strict uh, definition that we'd like, but I bet they do, mate. I reckon um, I'm, I'm tipping 100% of them have social lives. I think you may be correct there, Mark, and I'll have to go through that paper and see if you're one of the co-authors on that by the sound <laughs> of things there. I'm a bit sus there. Yes, and that links into our main topic this week, which is care of sugar gliders as pets, Mark. And sugar gliders, as most of us know, are very popular pets worldwide, but they are a native Australian marsupial. Um, so we've certainly seen a few of them in our time, Mark. And we're going to chat a little bit about how they should be kept or why they should be kept and do they make good pets. And a bit of an overview of the, the, um, a couple of key points as far as the husbandry, if, if you are going to have sugar gliders as a pet or, or you have clients that have, have them as pets, Mark. So, well, let's jump into it. Um, I mean, and we have... We have hinted at this, or well, not just hinted at it. We've we've said fairly strongly or firmly previously that I think our both our both our thoughts are in agreement in that we don't think they're great pets, um, and that we and I certainly do encourage clients who are considering purchasing the sugar glider to have them as a pet to think again, Mark, and and maybe consider another species because of some of the issues and difficulties of keeping them as a pet. Um, do you do the same? For exactly the same, Brendan. I th- it's, um, we should just point out that there are, um, not every state in Australia can you keep these marsupials as pets. They yes, are so- kept worldwide. And it, yes, and, and uh, obviously the, the Legalities will vary um, between state and territory. Yes, yes. yes. But um, anyone that uh, does seem to develop an interest in them, I reckon it's good. They invariably vastly underestimate the resources, both in terms of time and and effort and cost that are required to provide them uh, an ideal captive life. And, um, and we'll touch on some of those reasons as we talk later. It's a really interesting thing, Brendan, that um, sugar gliders are, um, like we, the sugar gliders that are worldwide pets probably are not sugar gliders. Recent uh, DNA analysis has um, outlined uh, sugar gliders as a relatively small population in southeastern Australia. And the more widely spread um, species virtually indistinguishable to look at, but genetically distinct is Kreft's glider. And even some specialists, some experts in the area think Kreft's glider will be uh, broken up into a number of different taxa as well. Kreft's glider extends into uh, Papua New Guinea and almost all the, the animals that are around the world, particularly in the US as uh, pets, uh, have been DNA traced back to those populations in uh, the Indonesian uh, part of Papua, West Papua, um, and uh, and so yeah, there. While there's a whole lot of taxonomy and nomenclature that's confusing, um, you can treat them all the same. They all behave like sugar gliders. Yes, that was a very. Uh... A very good monologue there, Mark. <laughs> uh, but excellent. I think we've mentioned that before about the the um, the, uh, 
the provenance of of um, the pet sugar gliders is is quite interesting. Um, yeah. So, and the lifespan of the mark. Um, I'm going to jump. We've got a couple of. I actually put a few notes down this week. Um, <laughs> is up to you know um, ten to twelve years for the pet ones. Um, so. That is a key factor that you need to chat to the clients about and that they go out and they buy these cute little sugar gliders. And I think that's part of the issue with these ones that aren't looked after very well. They're they're almost like an impulse buy um, in that, gee, isn't that little cute glider thing? I want to take it home, mum, dad. Um, or even dad says to mum or vice versa, <laughs> can I take it home? And um, then they don't realise that, hey, this thing's going to live for 10 or 12 years. Um, so that's something they need to certainly factor into it. Um, and one of the big ones which you hint, we hinted with that news story there, Mark, is that they are extremely, I'd call it, communal animals. They like living with other sugar gliders and psychotic sugar gliders are not an uncommon site in a veterinary clinics, Mark, because even if they do, typically they're often sold as a pair, you know, a male and female pair, but even with that, Mark, they they don't, you know, they're not getting that stimulation they need, that communal group that they're having typically in the wild. Um, and with the rest of the setup that is often inadequate, they end up, what's it, I call them the equivalent of the, you know, the parrot, the feather plucks, Mark, um, yeah. sugar gliders. So they do all sorts of weird behavioural issues and um, from from being, you know, very, very nasty with their attacks to the owners to to doing the equivalent of, you know, feather plucking for, for attacking their own fur um, and also fighting with their little cage mates and just not having an enjoyable time. So, you know, that's the key Probably the first key point I chat to the clients about is that they are very communal animals and, and you certainly need more than one. And unfortunately, I do see some clients that have gone out to purchase a sugar glider and it is a single sugar glider and it's a bit of a nightmare. Um, what what do you say to that client who's brought in that one sugar glider, Mark? Get yourself Apart another half you, a dozen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're exactly right. The, the average family size in wild groups is seven they can get up to 12 or 15 the social interactions are spread across a large number of individuals when you just keep a pair um, they become overly focused on each other um, and um, and the psychotic animals often are the result and you, you hit the nail on the head those single animals inevitably end up with behavioral problems particularly self-mutilation the one you hinted at uh, being an analogy for the, the parrot situation and so uh so yeah if they've got one they need to be prepared to get a bunch more to keep that one happy and then of course you're going to talk about the complex environmental enrichment that they require yes if i can hit the button correctly to turn my Little mute button off. I've got a bit of a scratchy throat today. Yes, they need lots of things to do. That's the bottom line. So we need a big enclosure. They like to do sugar glider things. They like to not well, not to glide. They need to climb and explore. So the ideal setup that I recommend for well the climate that we're in, Mark, is having a big, a really big aviary type enclosure um, in the backyard. That's you know at least a few meters long and, and meter or so wide and it's got lots of gum trees and all sorts of little hidey hole areas for them and nest boxes 
by the dozen there so they've got lots of areas where they can decide i like this little hide area and this nest box compared with the only other nest box if you just supplied them with a solitary one they may not enjoy that one so you're giving them lots of things to do and explore and you're constantly changing that environment you're adding as they destroy them too mark um you're adding more more branches and and um climbing climbing areas for them and giving them even things like tunnels and simple you know um shelters and things to destroy like cardboard boxes and you're just giving them lots of things to do mark because they get bored easily i think what do you do talk about um one of the uh complicated aspects of their captive husbandry is that they are nocturnal and so they're going to sleep most they would normally get into a hollow log and sleep all the day and then be hugely active at night um two things happen when they're in captivity people want them to be active in the day and so they're disturbed by bright lights and poking fingers um, no no surprise there that they often have a nip at those fingers um, and then they're going to be active all night um, and so you have to give people some advice about the best way to well not expect them to do things they're not supposed to do yeah well so i mean you do get the odd person who tries to do it I'm an indoor setup with re reverse cycle with it, so they're yep. their night is our our day, and then um, you hunt around in the dark playing with them <laughs> during the day <laughs> in the room they are in. Um, but yeah, it's a tricky one, Mark. Um, I th I think they'd soon realise that hey, they you know they like to sleep a lot during the day and and interact with them sort of at that dusk period uh, when they're starting to come out and, and around and the owners are you know back from their working day um do you do you have any particular tips that you recommend for the for the owners i think the key thing is just making sure that people are aware of it um that they aren't gonna be active in the day um, the animals are going to sleep and and unless they go to the trouble of those nocturnal house artificial reverse light diurnal uh, cycle systems um, then they're only going to have those hours after dark until they go to bed to interact with them and then they're going to have to be prepared um, to deal with the activity like if they do have an indoor room um, those uh, those animals are going to be banging around in there all night yep 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 another reason why perhaps they shouldn't be keeping those pets there mark i mean they are extremely popular pets especially in some countries like the united states and um you know there's lots of sugar glider online groups and that 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 promote them as being fantastic pets and and kept correctly i think they can have a decent life as a as a as a pet i was going to say captive animal um but as a as a exotic pet um but we need to make sure that we we cover these bases that we're talking about these general rules about the importance of providing them with lots of little friends um a, a big area um and providing that in, environmental enrichment mark and, and one of the other big ones which i think was the last little topic we're going to touch on because we could do several we, we'll cover get back to sugar gliders again in a future podcast is the diet mark do you want to yeah. chat a little bit about that well it's complicated in the wild <laughs> they they love um particularly new shoots and there's a number of uh 
um, wattles and eucalypts in the wild where they feed on the sap. They're, it's a, you know, they will regularly scar trees, have particular points at which they bite into the the uh, tree and expose the living xylem underneath and um, cause the flow of sap, which they return to on a regular basis. Um, and so it is that the new captive nutrition is uh, a little bit difficult. And there are a number of formulated uh, sugar glider diets um, and coupling those with high quality fruits um, uh, and vegetables is probably the ideal way to go and depending on which country you're in obviously the access to natural branches with uh, leaf tips um, probably rounds out the diet yeah i it's think in- we're lucky we're lucky here in, in australia with with these as um, having a lot of the native plants that we can supply that have those native you know fruits and berries and um, we can provide a good variety of them, Mark. So it, it, it's we're lucky um, because I, I think the real difficulty that people struggle with, and, and I certainly struggle with it um, as well at times, is the whole. <laughs> it's a tr- tricky topic, topic. The whole aspect of the sugar glider um, nectars, Mark. Uh, yes. And and what the hell is that? And and um, all the different homemade sort of nectars and and. Um, products that are out there there are some commercial ones um and and the whole science or lack of science behind the feeding of those those products so i'm going to hand all that one to you to do a bit of a summary of that mark well i think that um the key thing for me with uh, the uh the commercial nectars um is that they are not they are not meant as a complete diet um, these animals don't survive on nectar alone in the wild, um, and so they're they're only meant as part of the diet. And it's an important thing to use a you know a reputable brand. And there are a number of companies that do put some science, nutritional science into the product that they uh, have for this species, um, and it's good to source those ones out. Look for those. Uh, companies that at least have done some research. It's interesting too, Brendan, that um, a feral population of Crefts glider has been introduced to Tasmania, an island uh, many people overseas would realise is off the south coast of Australia, and um, and they cause immense damage by predating upon nestling birds, particularly the endangered swift parrot down there. So their diet is complex and uh um and not as simple as uh, uh you know the the nectar diets would suggest i reckon and um and some attention um to the variety that they might take is really important yep well summarized mark well summarized and as i said we could we should really at some stage do a a whole podcast just on the diet of these these little guys um and <sighs> Not relating to husbandry, but relating to handling of them. The only other thing I wanted to comment on is the, is the dealing with them in, in the veterinary situation. Yeah, they are certainly cute, but by by gee, they can bite, Mark. Um, so be very, very careful when you handle them. And, and my, my clinical exam of these is often um, from afar in a consult, in, in, in a wellness profile, um, wellness checkup. It, it's going through all the husbandry and the set up with the client and then it would be having a brief examination of the animal usually in the pouch that it's brought in um, and uh, 
than restraining its head, <laughs> um, not trusting it, and uh, doing a, another brief um, physical exam. Um, if I need to do anything more than that, my technique is to briefly gas it down, Mark. It. Yeah, I'll anesthetise it there because those those needle-like uh, incisors, Mark. Um, once you're getting bitten by bitten by one of them, you um, you don't um, you don't forget it very quickly, do you? Well, they chew through trees to get the blood of trees what they, i'm not nearly as tough as a tree they're going to get a lot more blood out of me and they whenever i handle them they regularly <laughs> make attempts to so um yeah i'd be being so very, be very cautious. careful but it's for those vets who um and and veterinary nurses technicians who are not used to dealing with them don't be fooled by the client who says yes my my uh, my sugar glider is very placid and um, open up the pouch and you have a sugar glider <laughs> you have blood dripping from your arm or hand and the sugar glider on the ceiling and you spend the next half a day trying to catch the thing because it's got into the got into the um, into the ducts or the electrical you know um, conduit region yeah so yes so be very very careful with the mark um, as far as dealing with them but yes i can see the reason why people like them because they are beautiful animals that's for sure oh, they're so, exceptionally cute I do, I do understand why people become attracted to them. Just don't underestimate what you've got to do to keep them fairly. Yes. And I think with that, Mark, we're going to get out of here. And any questions, send an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. Go and visit our website, vetgurus.com. Poke around there, look at the other 270-odd episodes we have there. And thanks for listening. And subscribe if you have not already. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.